Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This podcast is made possible thanks to Black Ballad's membership community. To find out how to join our community of professionally ambitious, socially conscious and culturally curious black women, visit the link in our show notes. You're listening to episode three of Black Ballad Presents the survival guide. I'm Jendela Benson, head of editorial at Black Ballad, and this podcast is about the roller coaster that is parenting as a black woman in modern Britain. Now, before I get into today's episode, I have a story for you. When my oldest son was about three, we were playing a game of I Spy. Because he couldn't spell yet, we would use colours instead of letters. And when my turn came around, I said... I spy with my little eye something that is black. He went through every single black thing he could see. My shoes, the table leg, someone else's t-shirt. And eventually when he gave up, I said, Daddy. My son replied instantly, No, daddy's not black. Daddy's brown. And I thought, damn, he's right. My son didn't know what black in a racial context meant. All he knew was skin tone. Daddy was dark brown, mummy was lighter brown, and he was medium brown. It dawned on me again when I bought a beautiful illustrated book about Nelson Mandela and then realised that I wasn't ready to read it to him yet. A well-meaning white stranger told me that I just had to. It was so important that my child knew the story of Nelson Mandela. But I said... You can't tell the story of Nelson Mandela without the story of apartheid. And you can't explain apartheid without talking about race, racism and what it means to be black in a world that is ruled by whiteness. It's something that I've struggled with for a while. How do I introduce the topic of race and when? I don't want my son to encounter racism and be caught off guard. So I was definitely eager to read a book called Why Are All The Black Kids Sitting Together In The Cafeteria by Beverly Daniel Tatum. Now Beverly is a respected psychologist and educator who has researched, written and lectured about the psychology of racial identity for decades. Her book is all about racial identity development in children, teenagers and adults. And when I got the chance to speak to her for this podcast... 
I was so excited to find out how she got into this field of psychology. Well, I'm going to start at the very beginning, which is to say I was born in 1954, which in the United States is a significant year. It was the year of the famous Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court case that basically made school segregation, declared it unconstitutional, legalized school segregation unconstitutional. And I was born in the South, in Florida. And um, my parents were both college graduates. They attended Howard University. And my father was an art professor. He was an artist and he was teaching at a historically black college in Florida, Tallahassee, Florida, um, that college being Florida A&M University. And I, I say all of that to say, you know, in the 1950s, it was still the Jim Crow South, where um, there was a lot of segregation. And even after the Supreme Court decision, which happened in May of 1954. I was born in September of 54. So just a few months later, um, the Southern states were slow to change their practices. So my dad, who was teaching, as I said, um, had a bachelor's degree from Howard and he had a master's degree in art from the University of Iowa, which is in the Midwest and a largely white state, um, but he'd been able to go to the University of Iowa and now wanted to get his doctorate so he could advance in higher education. And he was not able to do that in Florida because the program he was interested in was offered at Florida State University, which happened to be in the same city, Tallahassee, but it was a whites-only institution. So he was not able to attend Florida State. However, the state of Florida was required to provide access because of the Supreme Court ruling. They had to do something. And the way that the state responded to its legal obligation was to pay my father's transportation out of the state. So they essentially sent him to Pennsylvania where he was able to go to Penn State University and earn his doctorate degree. When he finished that degree, and, if, and you can imagine the ridiculousness of this, right? The, the institution just across town would have been perfectly fine, but no, he couldn't go there. So um, he had to commute back and forth between Florida and Pennsylvania, which is several states away. And so he did finish his degree, but when he had completed it, my parents decided they did not want to raise their children in this segregated system. So he started looking for another opportunity and got a job in Massachusetts, which is in the Northeast, and um, became the first African-American professor at what was a very small college at that time, gotten bigger since, uh, but Bridgewater State College, now known as Bridgewater State University. And I grew up in this small college town, Bridgewater, Massachusetts, which is about 30 miles from Boston and um, almost entirely white town. And I was, for all, almost all of my educational experience, the only black kid in my class. So, um, so that was my experience as a young black girl growing up in this predominantly white community. Uh, but I had the privilege of being the child of educators. My mom, who was uh, raising her kids while my dad was teaching, um, went to school at night to get a graduate degree in education and she became a teacher as well. So I'm growing up with these two teachers, uh, one college professor, one a, a classroom teacher. My mom was a reading teacher. She specialized in that. And, um, 
and really benefited from having been in this very education-oriented household. So I knew that I was going to go to college. That was um, a given in, our, in my house. And I really thought a lot about where I wanted to go to college because I really wanted to get out of this little town. So I um, went off to school. Now it was when I graduated from high school, it was 1971. So, you know, I'm, I'm old, right? I'm, uh, I'm uh, in my 60s. But I um, went off to college thinking a lot about identity issues of my own experience, growing up as a black girl in a predominantly white community, wondering about, you know, where I fit in, wanting very much to be part of a black community, but not sure how I would fit in because I hadn't been growing up in one. The college I selected was Wesleyan University, which is a predominantly white institution in Connecticut, just one state away from Massachusetts. But what was interesting about Wesleyan was it had been an all-male institution. It had been for men only. But then in the 70s, early 70s, they started accepting women. So I was in the second class of women at Wesleyan. And so to put this all in context, I was you know, one of few Black students, but many more than in my hometown. And... Um, and one of few Black women, because most of the students at the school were men. Um, I actually thought that was a good arrangement, to be perfectly honest, because I thought it would improve my dating opportunities. And so I um, was grateful to have that experience. I enjoyed my college experience very much. I did have a boyfriend, and it was all good. Um, but I really was interested in thinking about how um, this question of identity, you know, why were all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? And I was one of them. I was sitting at the black table in the cafeteria. And I was curious about the experiences of other young people like me. By that, I mean other young black kids who also had grown up in predominantly white communities. And I noticed that some of them when they came to college, did not sit at the black table. Some of them seemed to continue to stay in a circle of mostly white friends and not connect in the way that I had really wanted to connect. And I was curious about that. You know, like why was it so important to me and it didn't seem to be important to them? While I was in college, I had my first Black professor, a woman no longer living, I'm sorry to say, but her name was Faye Bulware, and she really introduced me to the work of Black psychologists. I came to college wanting to study psychology. I was very interested in the topic of human behavior, but um, I learned about Black psychologists who were writing about identity while I was in college and um, specifically taking a course with this Black female professor. And so I got excited about, you know, this idea of identity development and how that works and what's the role of parenting in determining how kids think about their identity. And so when I graduated from college, I went straight into a PhD program at the University of Michigan with the idea of studying this. Um, I was interested in children. I became a clinical psychologist with a focus on children. You know, everyone has to do a dissertation as part of their doctoral studies. And I decided to do my dissertation 
on the experiences of Black families raising children in predominantly white communities. No secret why that would be of interest to me, um, given my background, but it was something that no one had been writing about. You know, at the time that I was a graduate student, no one had done a study of Black families living in predominantly white communities. People who wrote about Black families were writing about inner city families or families living in the rural South, but no one was talking about the experience of being Black in a largely white environment. So I was very interested in that. And I um, interviewed families who were raising their children in predominantly white communities and was looking to understand how did the parents socialize their kids? What did parents do to help foster a positive sense of racial or ethnic identity? Or did they even think it was important? And what I found was some parents thought it was very important and they were very intentional about how they tried to uh, foster that strong, positive sense of identity. Other parents said it was important, but really didn't do anything about it. They just kind of let it happen as it would organically, so to speak. And then there were other parents who said, you know, it's not really that important. I don't focus on it. So then I was curious as to what difference it made. You know, if you grow up with parents who think it's important and really try to foster that identity, how do you turn out? You know, how do you feel about yourself versus the child who grows up in a family that says it's not important or we don't do anything in particular to try to help that? Fast forward a few years after I became a college professor, I had the opportunity to interview Black college students who had grown up in predominantly white communities and ask them about the strategies their parents had used. And what became clear to me was that those kids who had grown up in families with um, intentionality around fostering a positive identity were more self-confident, more secure in their own sense of identity, more resilient in the face of racism than those whose parents had kind of left it to their own devices, so to speak. In Beverly's book, she writes about the first time she spoke to her son about slavery. He was four years old, which feels incredibly young to be broaching such a topic, but her approach challenged me to think differently about my ideas around protecting my children from and preparing them for the world at large. So I had to know, are children ever too young to engage in conversations about race? I think the answer to that question is no, there's not, but it depends on how you do it, right? It has to be developmentally appropriate, age appropriate. So for example, young children, I don't know whether your kids have asked you any of these kinds of questions, but young children often do notice and comment on physical differences. You know, why is my skin darker than yours, mommy? Or, you know, whatever it might be. They notice differences, they ask questions. So the idea of, not the construct of race, but the idea of physical difference, is something that kids observe and they ask about starting from the time they can talk, really. You know, at a very early age, a two-year-old might make observations about someone's physical appearance. And that gives you an opportunity to talk about difference in a positive way. Like, oh, you know, my skin is this, your skin is that, melanin is why, you know, I mean, you can give explanations as I do in the book that are age appropriate and can be done in a way like, isn't that wonderful? You know, the human family has so much diversity in it, like flowers in a garden. You know, there are ways to talk about that in a very positive and affirming way. And I think particularly for young black kids, 
who are less likely to see themselves represented in children's books or on television in positive ways, um, using those conversations or even just the daily care that you are exercising, you know, combing hair or taking a bath or, you know, putting on lotion, all of those things are opportunities to talk about, oh, your skin's so beautiful. Oh, I love those little curls in your hair. Oh, look, your nose is just like mine. Do you know, I mean, that there are all kinds of ways to affirm those dimensions of their physical appearance that you know the wider world is likely to put down. Right. You know, so you can lift up the things that, you know, that others may not value. And I think parents, black parents should be doing that all the time, you know, because there's so many assaults to identity. You want to fill your child with as much positivity as possible, starting from the very beginning. Right. But then there are things that happen that have to do very specifically with these racial categories we've constructed. The racial categories that give, that talk about, you know, like why did that man kill George Floyd? That story is not just a local US story, right? It went around the world. People saw those videos and that. I can imagine your five-year-old, if he had any exposure to that um, news, would have questions about it, at which point then you might talk about racism. And then you might talk about, you know, some people believe that Black people are not as good as white people. We know that's not true, right? But some people believe that. Some people believe that, you know, Black men are dangerous. We know that's not true. But, you know, maybe that police officer believed that lie and um, and acted as though it, his life didn't matter. Um, it was very unfair. And yet when unfair things happen, we have to speak up about it. And, um, and now we're happy, of course, that he was found guilty, uh, that person, and is going to be held accountable. But this is why, you know, that's when you can start talking about some people have these ideas that we know aren't true, but they learned them when they were young and they still are confused by them. And we have to make sure that one, we don't perpetuate those bad ideas and two, help other people understand that these are bad ideas. And so um, whenever we're talking about what I call bad news, you know, racism is bad news. Whenever we're talking about bad news, I think it's always important to talk about what we are doing to try to change it, you know, because emphasizing the agency that we have um, to speak up and to bring about change. Um, and also, particularly for younger children, the fact that you as the parent are there to protect them. Now, you and I know that you can't always be there every minute of the day. Things happen and we can't control the environment completely. But particularly for young children, most of the time they're in our care um, or, you know, in the care of people we trust to um, treat them fairly and uh, care for them in a loving way. So to the extent that we are able to say, you don't need to worry about that because I'm here to protect you. Now, you know, when your child gets a little older um, and is out on his own riding his bike or playing with friends or doing that kind of thing, you know, and could conceivably have an encounter with police or with bullies who are focused on um, his racial group membership, that's a different story because you're not there. 
And so that person, that young person, needs to have some understanding about what to do if this happens, who to tell, how to respond to the police officer so they don't get beaten or get hurt in a more serious way. So, um, so those conversations are painful, they're hard to have, and yet necessary as, you know, it's like necessary to tell your children, you know, we think about um, the conversations that parents have about appropriate touching and that, you know, somebody is touching you inappropriately, you know, this is your body, don't let people touch you inappropriately, you know, that kind of, we would, in a, in a ideal world, you wouldn't need to talk to your kids about that, but we know that there are predators, right? Um, and so you have to prepare them so that they can protect themselves. In the same way, we need to have conversations with children about racism because it too is toxic. As Beverly was talking, I realised that part of the reason that I've been so hesitant to have these conversations with my kids is because of the residue of trauma that I still live with as an adult. A lot of the choices I've made are as a direct result of my experiences of racism in predominantly white environments. I choose to live in a very multiracial area of South London. The nurseries and schools I chose for my children were chosen in part because of the racial makeup of other students and the teaching staff. And I've been very resistant to moving further out of London, even though it is more affordable. Just because I don't want my kids to grow up as I did, a black kid in a sea of white kids. I don't regret any of my decisions and my boys are flourishing and have a great sense of confidence and of self. But I'm also aware that I don't want to project my own traumas and fears onto them as we explore more explicit conversations around race and racism. I wanted to know if there was anything that I can do as an adult to ensure that the conversations we have as a family are honest, helpful, but also healthy. Yes. Well, I, I, so it's a great question. And I think one of the things that adults can do to prepare ourselves is to educate ourselves, right? So reading, like reading my book as you are, um, you know, I am hopeful that the book will be helpful to parents in terms of thinking about what they might say and how to say it um, to children and just understanding the developmental uh, pattern that we can see kids going through. So you have a better sense of when and why it's useful to speak to your kids, but also, the good news is that there are a lot of children's books, books designed for children that um, address some of these issues. So the parent who doesn't feel ready or maybe prepared to have the conversations can find a book that has been written for children that they can read together. I'm thinking right now about a book called Something Happened in Our Town, which is specifically about a police shooting. And it is written for children between the ages of four and eight. At the end of the book, there's a little discussion guide for parents. You know, the kinds of questions that might come up, what a parent might say. Um, and so I could imagine sitting reading with a four-year-old or a five-year-old just by way of introducing the subject or, or perhaps in response to the news, you know, that this is a hard topic. I don't really feel ready to talk about it. Let me, you know, let's read this book together. Oh, look, I came across this book. Let's read this book together. Um, then this is kind of like what happened, what we saw in the news, you know, um, and kind of have guided conversations in that way. But I also think um, 
this podcast, you know, gives women and others a chance to think about and maybe rehearse a little bit uh, what you might say with peers, right? With friends, you know, this is, this question's coming up. What did you say to your kid? You know, let me practice. You know, it's no, there's no, um, no reason not to practice. Rehearsal helps, right? You know, whether that's looking in the mirror and imagining you're having the conversation because the more you do it, the easier it gets, right? It, it feels less charged. You desensitize yourself in a way that um, makes it easier. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Dear. In chapter four of Beverly's book, she writes about racial identity development in adolescence, and she discusses something called oppositional identity. What's that, you're probably asking? Well, as black teens become more aware of systemic and historical racism, they can begin to develop an oppositional social identity to compensate for that. Quoting from the book, This oppositional stance both protects one's identity from the psychological assault of racism and keeps the dominant group at a distance. Now, practically, this often means leaning more heavily into things that are seen to be authentically black or part of black culture and completely rejecting those associated with mainstream or white culture. But this can translate as kids accusing another black kid of acting white because they listen to indie rock or don't use the same slang as other kids. Now, of course, as mature adults, we know that this limits the idea of what it means to be black. And even though it is a coping mechanism to deal with racism, it can really hurt the kid who's been accused of acting white. Another way that this can manifest can even be leaning into stereotypes around blackness, especially when it comes to school achievement. And sometimes black kids even pretending to like things that they don't just because they're seen as authentically black. The other end of the spectrum could be perceived as trying to act quote-unquote raceless and assimilate better with the white peers around them. 
This can be a naive attempt to prove that they're not like other black people and that they're the exception to all the stereotypes about blackness that we're bombarded with. This can mean black kids avoiding partaking in things that they might actually enjoy, such as basketball, athletics or listening to hip hop, just to try and create a distance between themselves and blackness. And for some black folks documented in Beverly's book, there's even men avoiding reporting racist experiences to school authorities because they didn't want to draw further attention to their blackness. Now, something that Beverly proposes is striking the balance and being an emissary particularly within an academic setting. This means avoiding stereotypes about blackness while wearing your racial identity with pride. So for example, if achieving academically is associated with acting white, it's the idea of reclaiming academic achievement as being entirely consistent with being black and seeing any achievements as, quote, advancing the race. This can easily fall into the realm of impossible standards of black excellence, though. So I wondered, is this entirely too much pressure to be put in on black children? I think it's the fact of life in a way. I mean, they don't have to be a quote emissary, but in some ways the emissary is maybe the healthy choice. And so what do I mean by that? The fact of life is that racism is part of the societies in which we live, right? And your child is going to be exposed to other people's stereotypes. You know, the black kid who's being followed around in the store because somebody thinks they might steal something is having somebody's stereotypes projected onto them. Um, That black child is gonna learn to keep their hands visible so that they can't be accused of having put something in their pockets or, you know, whatever it is. There are coping strategies that children will learn as they get older and are confronted with other people's stereotypes to manage the manage those stereotypes. You know, there's a story um, that I read some time ago about a young man who, young black man who found that he was often, you know, he was kind of tall and um, was perceived as threatening, particularly by white people. Minding his own business, just walking down the street, but because he was big and black, you know, people saw him as threatening. And he learned that if he whistled while he walked, like a familiar tune, um, people seemed less afraid of him, right? You know, it's like, oh, here's this friendly guy whistling down the street. What harm will he cause, right? Um, And so he learned to whistle um, tunes that would be familiar to white people when he saw them coming to put them at ease and make his life easier. Now that um, is a coping strategy, right? Not everyone's gonna use that coping strategy, but I use that as an example because if you're confronted with a situation regularly, you're gonna develop some strategy for engaging it. So let's imagine there's stereotypes at school about black students being less intelligent, less competent as students. Well, some students might buy into the stereotype. That's what you expect from me. That's what you're going to get. I'm not going to deliver, right? I'm going to be a low performer um, because, you know, we rise to the level of expectations. If your expectations are low, that's what you're going to get from me. That is a strategy, but it doesn't work to your benefit right? Because it doesn't lead to the choices you might want in terms of going on to advanced study and the kinds of employment opportunities, etc. But some, some kids will fall into that particular strategy. There are other kids who will say, 
I am going to be the exception to the rule. You know, you have these expectations, but look at what I can do. And and they might um, outperform what everyone expects of them. And that is to their credit because they will have opportunities. But sometimes even when they're doing that, they are doing it from a place of my peers fit the stereotype. I'm going to um, reject that stereotype. So seeing themselves as exceptional, I'm different from my peers. And while that can be a successful strategy in terms of school performance, it's a tough strategy in terms of peer friendships. You know, that's the kid who's going to Nobody wants to, you know, you think you're better than we are kind of thing. But the kid who says, you know what, we're all better than that. I'm better than that. And so are you. Because we are part of a long tradition of excellence. You know, these are the examples of that excellence. I'm trying to be like W.E.B. Du Bois or I'm trying to be like Malcolm X who educated himself. When you are able to say, I am not an exception, I am the rule, right? My excellence is the rule, not the exception. And you should be part of the rule too, right? That's the emissary. And you can see how that could be a very positive choice. We could say, is that a burden? Yes, dealing with racism is a burden. But until we get rid of racism, that's going to be effective life. So in the face of racism, what strategies do you want your child to employ? Really, that's the question. Thankfully, we are starting to see more representation of black and brown children in books, films and TV programmes. The sceptic in me knows that for most, still predominantly white, publishing houses and production studios, it is a business decision first and foremost. So I also wanted to know, is representation enough? Well, representation is better than no representation, right? <clears throat> so so it is um, a step. Is it all that's needed? No, it's not. Um, you know, if we think about why representation matters, we all want to see ourselves reflected. I often use the analogy of a photograph. You know, if we were all in a room together, you, me, several other people, if we were all in a room together and took a group photo, each of us would get a copy of that photo. And the first thing each of us would do would be to look at the picture and say, where am I, right? We would look for ourselves in the picture. And if for some reason we'd been digitally removed, you know, the photographer had digitally removed me from that photo before I got my copy of it, I'd be asking, what's wrong with this picture? I was there. How come I'm not in the picture? This sort of the erasure of Black people from books, from television, from history, you know, leads you to ask, why am I not in the picture? What's wrong with me? Why aren't we in the picture? Representation addresses that. Uh, of course, the question is, how are you being represented, right? Because you want to be in the picture. You want to be in the picture looking good, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you, want, you want to be looking good in that photo. You don't want the representation to just be about victimization, Oh, yes, there's here's another book about, you know, the experience of slavery or here's another book about, you know, being victimized in some way um, you want, you know, we want to see children doing things that kids do, playing with their friends, being at home with their families, doing things that's just part of everyday life, being the hero in the story, you know, the adventurer, the the um, the problem solver. So all of that 
is important, particularly when we understand that absence creates a sense of invisibility, right? So we want to be um, included. But we also know that racism isn't just about who's in the picture. It's also about power. It's also about um, resources. It's also about how um, society functions. And asking questions about equity is also part of the, um, the conversation. You know, understanding what would a more equitable society look like? What would that mean in terms of not just, you know, who's in the book, but who's in the publishing house? Who's making those decisions? You know, who is, who has access to that employment? Who is determining what stories will be told? All of that is part of the bigger problem. If you listen to our last episode, you will know that we spoke to two mums raising their kids in inter-ethnic households about culture clash and how to avoid it. A tricky question many parents in inter-ethnic families face is how they can raise their children to appreciate all the cultures they're a part of and not identify with one aspect of their identity above the other. Yes. So the experience of multiracial families is really um, a growing question because, of course, we know more and more there are multiracial families and the number of children who have a multiracial background is um, certainly increasing rapidly in the United States. And I imagine that's true in the UK as well. But how parents uh, deal with this, there are a lot of factors. And, and so one of the factors is how does the family, how do the parents themselves feel about their child's identity. In some families, let's say where one partner is black and the other partner is white, if that's the combination, um, in some families, the black parent will say, yes, you have a white parent, but the world is going to view you as black and you should embrace that black identity, not to disavow your white parent, but because you are perceived in that way and this is how the world is gonna see you. And so claiming that black identity is important and some families define it in that way. Other families will say, we are a multiracial family. You have a multiracial identity. And being multiracial is an identity that works if you are part of a community where there are other multiracial people, right? So, you know, if, if I walk into a room and, and I mention that I identify as multiracial, if, if someone were to say that um, and no one else had ever met a multiracial person, they might say, I don't get what that is. You look black to me, right? Do you know what I mean? But if you are part of a community or a, an environment where there's a certain commonality, right? You know, there, there's a sufficient number of other people who also identify as multiracial. It becomes its own category. And when you say you're multiracial, people get what that means. So, so in some ways it will depend. It also depends, and this is often the case in the same family, that there may be children with different physical appearances, right? So you could have in a multi, and you know, in a, a couple where one parent is white and the other parent um, identifies as of African descent as black, the um, children might not necessarily look like one or the other parent, but sometimes they do. So sometimes you have a child who looks more like the white parent. And even if that child claims a black or multiracial identity, if they are perceived as white, 
they will be treated as white when they're alone. Now, when they're with the parents, they may be perceived differently, but um, a white looking child will have a different experience in the same family as a darker skinned child of the same parents. And parents need to be uh, ready to have conversations with their children about the unfairness of that. You know, it's unfair that our darker skinned child is treated or viewed differently than our lighter skinned child. Um, and what does that mean? You know, so these are the kinds of conversations that sometimes come up and they come up in ways that um, young children talk about. So I'll give you an example. In my book, there's a story where my one of my sons observed a mother and a child who did not look the same racially. And he asked me, mommy, why don't they match? And I, and at first I didn't know what he was talking about, but then it became clear to me, he was talking about this woman and her child. Why don't they match? And then I said, they don't have to match. And he's like, but kids and their moms are supposed to match. Well, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Right. Um, and so just having a conversation about that, you know, yes, you and I match, but, you know, not everybody does. And it's okay. People don't have to match. And um, those are some, those are the kinds of questions that come up um, in multiracial families. It can even come up like, you know, mommy, why don't you and daddy have the same color skin, you know, or why is my skin different from yours? Um, and again, it, this doesn't have to be a loaded conversation. Everybody has something in their skin called melanin. Melanin makes your skin darker in the sun. Some people have more melanin in their skin than others. Dad has a lot. I have less. You have a medium amount, you know, um, and that's why our skins are different shades. But which identity children claim in some ways will have a lot to do with how they look. You know, President Barack Obama in the United States wrote a book about his growing up years. And he talked about the fact that, you know, yes, he was being raised by his white grandparents. You know, his mother was away and his father, his African father was not in his life. And could he claim a white identity living with those white grandparents? Not looking the way he looked, you know, that was not gonna work for him. The identity he had to claim was the identity that people saw in him, which was they saw a young black man. And that is the identity that he learned to embrace and affirm. Um, so some of what we talk about as choice for multiracial youth really is determined by their social context. And some of that has to do with how they look. Whether our partners are from different backgrounds or not, a lot of us are raising our kids in contexts where they may be in the minority, whether that's in their school, their neighbourhood or other social situations. So it begs the question, how can we positively reinforce our kids' identity and raise them in a way that they have a positive relationship with their cultural heritage and not lose their ties to it? Well, this is exactly the question that I was first studying, right? When I started my career as a psychologist, this was exactly the question that I was interested in. How do parents do this? And so what I learned is that um, there are varying strategies, as I mentioned earlier, but the strategy that seems to work the best from the child's point of view in terms of the self-confidence and um, self-awareness that you want your child to develop 
is when parents are really intentional about maintaining their ties. Um, and so how can you do that if you are living at some distance? You know, maybe you're moving out of London to another community where there's not uh, much representation, very few families like yours in the town or in the village. And um, but do you still have ties to friends in London? Can you go back for visits? Um, are there ways to arrange sleepovers so that you know your child can stay connected? Of course, they will make friends in their local community. And maybe all their friends will be white because maybe they're the only black kid in the neighborhood. But are there ways to connect culturally? In the United States, one strategy that families often used was to go elsewhere for church, for worship experiences, right? So uh, maybe you live in a predominantly white community, but maybe a couple towns over, maybe a city, maybe it's a 30 minute drive, maybe longer. Um, parents put everybody in the car and go on a Sunday to a church where they're gonna have interactions with other black families. Um, some families would say, okay, my kids all year are in this environment and there's no church nearby or it's not part of our tradition, um, but they can spend summer vacations with their relatives who are still in a multiracial community so that they are getting exposure in doses, big doses maybe. So trying to use those ties. In some communities, there may be enough families to form like a little pod of gatherings, you know, that we're not all in the same neighborhood, but you know, within a radius of a few miles, I can bring together four or five moms and their kids and our kids can be part of a little club where they have a chance to interact with each other. So all of those are strategies that parents who are intentional about it often use. And my research suggests that it pays off when you do those things. It might feel like, you know, you're working hard and you're busy with your job and raising your kids and who has time for another social organization or that kind of gathering. But in the long run, your children will thank you if you provide those opportunities. I loved Beverly's answer because it's an accessible solution. It's just about being intentional, about creating and prioritising that space for you and your family. And while the kids will benefit, the adults will also benefit too. As well as racism, another ism we have to proactively tackle in our families is colorism. I have kids with very different skin tones and I've also been hyper aware of how family members talk about them, even in jest. But I'm also very aware that I don't want them to perpetuate and internalise colorist attitudes, especially as they get older and desirability gets thrown into the mix. Beverly says the key thing about colorism is that we need to stop dancing around the issue and confront it head on. Yeah, well, I completely agree. Colorism is alive and well, and you can see lots of examples of it. And it sounds like you have some firsthand experience with it. And I think naming it as a problem, you know, not denying it, but to say, you know, colorism is a form of internalized racism. It's when, you know, we have taken that racial at the racist attitudes um, and come to believe them ourselves and project them onto each other on the basis of our skin color. You know, that's a problem and we should reject that. And so, so in terms of your kids to say, you know, it is important to understand we're all beautiful, right? We're all beautiful. 
you know, all the shades of the rainbow. We're beautiful. The colorism usually plays itself out in terms of the lighter skinned person being the more privileged one. But sometimes it goes in the other way. Sometimes in some families, the lighter skinned person is seen as less desirable because they remind everybody of the, you know, sort of the white master, so to speak. And the darker skinned person is perhaps seen more favorably. Either is problematic. Right. So we want to just talk about the fact that what matters is the kind of person you are and how we treat each other. Fundamentally, racism and colorism as a manifestation of internalized racism reflect what I'm going to reference here as a hierarchy of human value, that some people are more valuable than other people based on these artificial categories. We need to be clear that that is ridiculous. As human beings, we're all valuable and worthy and we all have special features and isn't that great? But but I think we can only address it if we name it. Part of the complication of talking about race with our kids is the fact that the conversation feels like it changes rapidly as they get older. While it's enough to talk about the beauty of diversity for small children, as they get older, other things come into play, such as dating and the adultification of black boys and black girls in different contexts as well as just your bug standard racism and discrimination. On top of just the general chaos of family life, trying to stay a few steps ahead and be prepared for the evolving racial landscape our kids move through is a lot to think about. I asked Beverly what us parents can do about that. Well, I think that, first of all, we should be aware that it does change. You know, a parent might say, my child doesn't seem to be thinking about this at all. They don't seem to be paying attention to race or racism at all. Um, and that might be true when the child is 10. It might be a very different story when the child is 14 or 15. So one of the values, one of the reasons I wanted to write about identity development in my book was so that parents would understand the developmental process. So if, you know, one day it seems like your kid's not paying attention and now all of a sudden they're all about their racial identity and really focused on it. That's not an unusual pattern and you can understand that more deeply if you um, read about it and have an awareness of it. Um, so I hope that the book is useful in that way. But one of the things that I want to say and I think is really important because, you know, I, like you, I'm the mother of boys. And the adultification of black boys is a problem. And we understand the, the challenges of having them know and appreciate how to respond to police in a way that hopefully leaves them safe and um, all of that. It is also important to say that the adultification of black girls is also a concern. And there's research in the States that shows that Black girls are perceived as less in need of protection, more sexually um, aware. And those two things in common put Black girls at risk for sexual um, exploitation. As one example, one potential hazard as a young girl, you know, if you are sexually assaulted and people think that you asked for it or that you're the sexual aggressor or that you're less in need of protection, all of those things can really be uh, very harmful in terms of expectations and societal treatment. So, so we often talk about the, 
the challenge that boys face, but I want to lift up the fact that girls are also at risk. The other thing I think for girls, because we talked a lot about boys, um, I think the other, particularly around dating in those teenage years, in my observation, particularly in predominantly white communities, that it's often the boys who have more social opportunities than the girls. That um, you know, white girls will perceive black boys as maybe interesting, exciting, somehow, um, you know, uh, available and um, worth pursuing, but black girls may feel devalued um, because so much of their physical appearance is devalued, whether it's their hair or their skin or other things. And so um, it can be a time of, self-doubt and um, concerns about self-esteem really need to be addressed and lifted up. So I think, again, creating those communities, those spaces where there's a, a circle of affirmation is really important. I'm so grateful for Beverly being so generous with her expertise and experiences. I learned so much from our conversation and I highly recommend her book, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? For anyone with kids or young people in their life who is interested in race, identity and identity formation. Since my conversation with Beverly, my oldest son and I have had our first chat around race and racism, aided by the book My Skin, Your Skin by Laura Henry Allen, a legend in the early years sector in Britain, the creator of Jojo and Grand Grand, and also a future guest on this season of the podcast. I'm grateful for the black women, both here and in the US, who share their knowledge for the benefit of parents around the world. If you're interested in Beverly and Laura's books, you can find links to them in our show notes. Thanks for passing the time with me for another insightful episode of Black Ballad Presents The Survival Guide. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please, please make sure you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Remember to tell everyone all over your social media about us and also make sure you're subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a Black Ballad production and theme music for this podcast is by Darrell Banks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.